Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Sorry, folks. Three crazy martinis today, all of them dealing with the media. So buckle up and get ready for that. Going to be fun, going to be depressing, and it's hopefully going to be informative as well. We're sponsored today by Stamps.com. Right now, three martini lunch listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. And all you need to do is go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in three martini to get your deal. So, Jim, let's begin with crazy media martini number one. This has been building for some time, and that's the question of what really happened with Empire actor Jesse Smollett uh, in the middle of the night during the polar vortex in Chicago. He alleged that he was uh, beaten, had bleach poured on him, had a rope thrown around his neck, and uh, people in Make America Great hats were yelling, this is MAGA country. Well, piece by piece, this has uh, fallen apart, and now sources uh, said to the media from the Chicago police that it would appear Smollett orchestrated this uh, attack. It wasn't really an attack at all. And so now the uh, responses are coming in, and the media, of course, is doing a fantastic job of blaming everyone else except itself for fanning the flames of this story before the facts were actually figured out by the Chicago PD. Uh, The number one uh, person that we're going to focus on today in this case is Brian Stelter, the media guy from CNN. Listen to this. Yeah, the headline was so sensational and so disturbing. It first came out on TMZ, not only that Smollett said he'd been attacked, but that the attacker said, this is MAGA country. Obviously, Chicago at 2 in the morning is not MAGA country, so that didn't make sense in the first place. Lots of parts of the story didn't make sense. But activists, actors, Hollywood celebrities, friends of Smollett, Democratic presidential candidates, they all wanted to sound like they were doing the right thing, saying the right thing, standing up for a victim. There's an inherent tension in this story between uh, wanting and needing to believe victims and yet knowing that people can take advantage of that, taking advantage of the idea that it's important to, to, to believe victims. And I, that tension has been the story for weeks. There was a rush to judgment. I think it was mostly in the celebrity press and among activists and among Twitter people. Uh, I think it was a really careful reporting by news organizations. But it all gets lumped in together at the end of the day. It all gets lumped in together in the minds of many people who now look at this and say, what went wrong here? And obviously, at the end of the day, what went wrong is that he may have made it up. And ultimately, that's his responsibility. Okay, the Chicago media did a very good job on this story. Mm -hmm. Brian Stelter, uh, your network and a lot of the other outlets in the major mainstream media uh, just ran with this because they assumed it was true and in some cases wanted it to be true. Yeah, I was going to say, what's interesting about Stelter is that uh, he stepped into Howard Kurtz's old shoes on CNN. And before Howard Howard Kurtz had his show, Howard Schultz, but there there are too many Howards (laughs) in my life, Greg. (laughs) Before Howard Kurtz was over on Fox News, he was on CNN. And, you know, for a long time on CNN, even before kind of the cable news wars, his beat for the Washington Post was covering the media world. And he did a pretty good job at it. I remember he was one of the first guys to jump on the Dan Rather story. And I don't know whether Howard Kurtz considers himself a conservative, but I think it's safe to say he was somebody who more often than not gave conservatives a fair shake. Brian Stelter is a guy who more often than not goes out of his way to make sure conservatives don't get a fair shake, uh, including, and this would be a pretty vivid example. Does he have a point in which he wanted to say, if he wanted to say, you know what, most of why you know that Smollett's story isn't panning out is because of the work of Chicago area media sources. And by the way, the other thing I noticed, by the way, it was often the, it was the, the Chicago area television stations. 
and a couple parts of the alternative press that were doing a great job on this. Every day when I was checking the Tribune and Sun-Times, they always seemed to be about a day behind, which is kind of interesting. But the general sense, most people in Chicago knew this story sounded really, really weird because this was literally the coldest night in Chicago in 30 years. Now, Chicago's cold all the time, but this was the one where it was, you know, your, your skin would get frostbite within a few moments of being exposed to that. It's a really weird time for two guys to be running around the city looking to, to, to attack somebody. To say nothing of the fact of, you know, this very odd small demographic of, of Trump fans who watch Empire and watched it enough to recognize that Smollett's character was gay or that Smollett was gay. Like, it's really weird. I mean, do you, do you see it at these Trump rallies? Do you see a lot of people flipping through Us Weekly and, you know, People and all these other celebrity magazines? I, I don't see that very much, Greg. So what, what Stelter you know, could do here is to say, you know what, if he wants to make that distinction that the celebrity press that tr- are used to covering Smollett as a celebrity activist were more credulous, okay, I didn't see major national institutions jumping in to say, okay, here's why this story doesn't make sense. This, was, this came out within a day or two, and almost everybody was saying within 48 hours, wait, what? This, this, that doesn't make sense. They, we, why would those guys be out there? Wait, how did this happen to be in the one spot in the middle of Chicago that didn't have security cameras? Why did it take them 40 minutes to call the cops? You know, All these different things about the story that didn't add up. The national media, my sense, by and large, lost interest in that. My suspicion is because they could actually smell the odor coming off of this story as well. Um, now, the interesting thing is that uh, Smollett then decided to keep beating the drum for this. I mean, he kept emphasizing doing the interview on Good Morning America. And, he, and I love how Steltzer kind of just hand waves away. Maybe the questions could have been a little bit tougher. You think? <laughs> and the other thing which is also worth noting in all this, and this is worth noting you know, when, when people talk about discussion of hate crimes, people talk about the discussion of anytime there's a he said, she said type story. Smollett went out and lied and lied through his teeth. And then he got indignant that anyone would think he was lying. And he counter-accused that, right? And he said that if my, if my attackers, if I'd said my attackers have been Latino or Muslim, everybody would have believed me, et cetera. I mean, he walked around very eager to point everybody else as a potential racist and everybody else as a potential homophobe and everybody else is not giving him the benefit of the doubt. Now, if, if Us Weekly or any one of the celebrity press wanted to say, look, we never figured he would do something like this, Okay, this is a pretty far out thing to do. Most people, you know, even narcissistic celebrities don't generally run around faking hate crimes. But this is something that, you know, again, you know, we're coming right on the heels of the Covington thing, on um, the BuzzFeed story about, uh, about Mueller that didn't pan out, the fact that we're doing an all media Monday here, you know, <laughs> come on, media, pull it together. Let's talk about something happier. It's President's Day. I'm sure you're celebrating. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you sent out your cards. If you haven't, it's a little too late today. There's no mail today because it is President's Day. Um, it's really Washington's birthday, but because everybody gets a trophy, we all have to pretend that all presidents are being honored today. I like to think it should be honoring the presidents born in February because you've got Washington, you've got Lincoln, you've got Reagan, and you've got William Henry Harrison, who, as I've mentioned before, is one of our greatest presidents because he did the least amount of damage to the Constitution out of anyone to hold the office since he was only in office for a month and he was sick the whole time. So. Every- Greg, yeah. everyone should celebrate by going out today without a coat. <laughs> That's right. But uh, if you want to get those President's Day cards out tomorrow, stamps.com is definitely the way to go. Postage rates are going up and have gone up again. But thankfully, stamps.com can ease the pain with big discounts off post office retail rates. With stamps.com, you save five cents off every first class stamp and 
and up to 40% off priority mail. That kind of savings really adds up, especially for you small business owners. Plus, Stamps.com is completely online, which saves you time. No more inconvenient trips to the post office. Stamps.com automatically calculates and prints the exact amount of postage that you need for every letter or package you send. You will never overpay or underpay again. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, or any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a free digital scale, which will automatically calculate the exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And finally, Stamps.com saves you money. They give you postage discounts that you can't get at the post office, including five cents off every first class stamp. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do from your desk for less. Three Martini Lunch listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a digital scale. See for yourself why over 700,000 small businesses use and love Stamps.com. Just go to Stamps.com, then click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Three Martini. That's Stamps.com. Enter Three Martini. All right, Jim, let's move to crazy media martini number two. And, of course, the presidential campaign for 2020 is well underway. Several Democrats already in the race, and they're already crisscrossing the early primary states. One of them is Kamala Harris, the senator from California. And uh, she was in South Carolina over the weekend, and she was visiting some small businesses in the state capital of Columbia. And uh, they stopped at a boutique, and apparently a lot of the mainstream media reporters started to give fashion advice to Kamala Harris. And so Caitlin Huey Burns, CBS correspondent, tweets out a short video of uh, the ladies in the press corps ooing and aahing over a very, I would say, loud jacket that uh, Kamala Harris was trying on and having fun with. And uh, the tweet from Huey Burns is, when the campaign trail takes you to a boutique and Mav Reston spots a great sequin jacket for Kamala Harris to try on. And, of course, uh, a lot of people watch the video and then a lot of blowback of people going, hey, nice job there, objective cheerleaders in the media. Even Brett Hume, the old uh, host of Special Report on Fox News, says this is just embarrassing. So now journalists are going shopping with Harris, helping pick out clothes and then putting out glowing tweets about it. And then you had some of the more liberal reporters firing back at Hume and others saying, well, Mitt Romney jet skied and we covered that. He bought a gift for his wife one time and we covered that and it was fun. And so what's with the double standard? Uh, not to be outdone, Margaret Sullivan, the columnist for The Washington Post, has decided that criticism of female candidates is pretty much off limits. She writes, one of the reasons it's so fresh that we're hearing echoes of it already in the early coverage of the female Democratic lawmakers who have declared their 2020 candidacies. The long-ago love life of Senator Kamala Harris has been parsed as what music she partied to as a Howard University undergrad. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand's uncertainty about how to eat fried chicken has been ruthlessly mocked. Senator Elizabeth Warren's candidacy was in trouble even before she declared because of the senator from Massachusetts identifying herself as Native American. So, Jim, uh, some folks in the media have decided that because... Other people were tough on Hillary Clinton. We can never let that happen again. Yeah, but we're lumping a lot of stuff together from, ha, she eats uh, fried chicken with a knife and fork to, ha, she just happened to claim she was Native American for the entirety of her early law career, you know, <laughs> um, lumping all those together as if they're the same thing. Look, every politician wants coverage that's kind of in this 
uh, genre or style as long as it, as long as nothing too embarrassing or bad comes out. Pat Toomey, the senator from Pennsylvania, uh, has a pilot's license. And so apparently in, in one of his profile pieces that my colleague John J. Miller wrote, John J. Miller you know, used to joke, you, you want to talk about how dedicated I am for a story. I got into a plane where Pat Toomey was flying. Um, and they took him on, I guess it was a Cessna, and they flew him around or something like that. I haven't gotten a ton of invitations like that. Uh, probably closest was Governor Bobby Jindal back in Louisiana back in, um, what was it, 2013 or so. But even then, we weren't at a backyard barbecue or, or anything like that. I was, was following around the governor for, uh, for 24 hours. Candidates love this kind of coverage. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about this. And that, you know, people want to know what politicians are like outside of their governing uh, uh, duties. And, you know, what are the, what's the real person like? It's, it's, very, it's not all that different from the celebrity profile pieces you'll find in Vanity Fair or GQ or something like that. Uh, I really enjoyed making fun of the Kirsten Gilgabrand pieces in Vogue that were all about what she wears and the furniture in her house and her personal style and, and all that kind of stuff. I don't find that stuff nearly as important about covering a presidential candidate than, you know, what they've done in office and what they want to do in office. But OK, fine. This is a necessary element of modern political journalism. I think if you're going to do something like that, if you're going to go on a shopping trip and it's going to sound like, oh, the girls are out having a good time. You probably should go out the next day or sometime in the not too distant future and write a piece that just slams Kamala Harris. <laughs> just just do it. Get it out of the way and do something where somebody says, hey, you're biased in favor of Harris. At least you've got that one piece where you can oh, don't slam her for her fashion choices. You know, don't make her pay for, you know, uh, for being unguarded and, and showing this kind of more human side of themselves or something like that. But again, the easiest way to prove, disprove the idea that, oh, you're always in the tank for somebody is write a piece that slams them. Find something, find some legitimate criticism and go to town on it. It's the opposite of what, what you'll sometimes see in Washington journalism, which is called a source greaser. If you've ever seen a piece that talks about some particular senator's chief of staff of being this brilliant mastermind who's helping the senator you know, enact an agenda or something like that. That is the correspondent basically writing a love letter to that chief of staff saying, please be one of my sources. <laughs> and that happens. And, you know, that, that is an aspect of journalism. No doubt the, the senator wanted these correspondents to come along and go shopping with her and see her kind of, you know, in a more casual environment. Fine. I think if you're one of those correspondents, though, you got to recognize the possibility that they're attempting to use you and try not to be too helpful in the effort to make you in putting out the message that the, uh, the Senator wants to put out there. Not Nothing wrong with it. In theory, in practice, this turns into basically giving democratic presidential candidates exactly the kind of coverage they want. Yeah. And there's usually a little bit of a self-preservation instinct here because these major news organizations oftentimes, and I don't know if they'll do this with 20 candidates in the race, but oftentimes they'll, put one correspondent with a specific campaign. So the longer that candidate's in the race, the longer you've got a steady beat. So there's an interest in, in, in keeping that going to some extent, although your ultimate job is to make sure that you're reporting substantive things as objectively as possible. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, again, every, almost every candidate does some version of this. We all remember the boys on the bus with, well, actually, the boys on the bus, the classic uh, uh, campaign literature, uh, a campaign journalism book from years ago, but also the guys hanging around with John McCain on the Straight Talk Express. Um, you know, candidates who say off the record and they start dropping swear words to show how authentic they are. Uh, this is before Beta O'Rourke came along. Uh, and started using them in, in, you know, every interview, like every, you know, oh, let's, let's have you and the candidate drive around for a day. Let's have you and the candidate uh, backyard barbecues, anything to demonstrate the candidate is a human being outside of, you know, 
there was a, I just was doing research for another piece and there was a big story on the workout routines of various members of the house and how Democrats and Republicans might be arguing a lot about policy, but they get up together and work together in the house gym, you know, and that I, I don't find that remarkably eye-opening or <laughs> lot surprising, but you know, clearly somebody's press uh, flack thought, Oh, this would be a good idea. Let's show that they all like you work on the medicine ball. together. <laughs> so they can't get together on healthcare reform, but they're both can handle a medicine ball. You know, <laughs> He's not going to let his friend from the other party get choked to death by by a bench press bar. Yeah, so clearly know, we can get something done on immigration. In a tough spot, but he's spotting his partner <laughs> on the weight rack. You know? Let's move to crazy media martini number three. New York Times. Oh, the Republicans are pouncing again, Jim. Look out. In the 116th Congress, the New York Times editorial says, if you're a Democrat, you're either a socialist, a baby killer, or an anti-Semite. That, at least, is what Republicans want voters to think as they seek to demonize Democrats well in advance of the 2020 elections by painting them as left-wing crazies who will destroy the American economy, murder newborn babies, and turn a blind eye to bigotry against Jews. The unusually aggressive assault, which Republican officials and strategists outlined in interviews last week, is meant to strangle the new Democratic majority in its infancy. Wow, is that a weird uh, twist of uh, what the Democrats actually want to happen here. So we've established strangling infants is bad, right? We're clear on that? We all all agree? Oh, yeah. It's going to be important later. (laughs) It was set in motion this month by President Trump, who used his State of the Union address to rail against, quote, new calls to adopt socialism in our country and mischaracterize legislation backed by Democrats in New York and Virginia as allowing, quote, a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments before birth. So was it a mischaracterization? Let's get in the Wayback Machine. Here's Democratic Delegate Kathy Tran of Virginia defending her abortion bill to uh, Republican House Majority Leader Todd Gilbert. How late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the, of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay, but to the end of the third trimester. Yep, I don't think we have a limit in the bill. Where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, that she has physical signs of, um, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman I understand that. that. I'm point. asking if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that, yes. Wild mischaracterization there, Jim. What do you make of uh, the preemptive effort of the New York Times to uh, stop the Republicans from pointing out what radicals the Democrats are? Yeah, I mean, let's we, we could go with that example or we could go with the example, the comments of uh, Governor Blackface. I'm sorry, Governor Northam, <laughs> right. um, who let's, you know, just, just a quick update from uh, my home state uh, to the rest of all of our listeners across the country and around the world. He's still governor. <laughs> Uh, there was this big, every, you know, to their, somewhat to their credit, as we're fond of giving out on this show, a molecule of credit to, you know, Democrats all across the state who called for his resignation. And then Northam effectively said, no, I will not resign. And then the state's Democrats basically said, OK, then. <laughs> and it was over. And, and you know, they, they may grumble, but there's certainly no effort to impeach. There's certainly no effort to remove him from office. It's been a whole two weeks, and we've all kind of decided to forget about that, or at least it seems to be that way on the uh, 
on that side of the aisle. But you know, remember, this all began, and the reason the yearbook was called to somebody's attention was because of his comments. It basically said, yeah, not only up to birth, but maybe a little bit after birth would be okay with it. Uh, this is, by the way, a guy who's a, who's a medical doctor. But then again, so was Gosnell, I suppose. Uh, yeah. the, 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 you know, the other thing, but, you know, he says, oh, you know, they're portraying members of Congress as anti-Semites. Look, we've been over what Congressman Omar has said. Right? I mean, when, you, when you keep stepping in the same thing over and over again, it stops being accidental. It stops being a, a random bad choice of words or something like that. And regarding socialism, look, you don't even have to look what's going on this year and, and you know, what Democratic lawmakers are saying. Uh, 2018 Gallup poll, they asked Democrats, do you have a positive view of capitalism? 47% said yes. By the way, uh, two years earlier, 56% had said yes. So it's less than 50%. Now, they'd ask Democrats, do you have a positive view of socialism? 57%. So now socialism is more popular amongst registered Democrats, talking to the Gallup organization. Uh, and that, by the way, if you're wondering about the numbers amongst Republicans, 71% have a positive view of capitalism. 16% have a positive view of socialism. Look, I don't think it's outrageous to say, at the very least, a chunk of the Democratic Party is now, first of all, pro-socialism, openly espousing socialism. Uh, now, they'll keep insisting, no, no, I want the happy Norway kind of socialism, not the Venezuela kind of socialism, not the, you know, North Korea's brand of socialism. It helps if you happen to have a ton of oil sitting off your shore the way Norway does to pay for all these sorts of things. But, uh, you know, again, everything they're saying, oh, they're painting them this way. Well, actually, at least one or two members, and in the case of, you know, several groups, are openly espousing that. And if you look at polls of, of you know, the folks who are voting in Democrats, uh, you know, primaries, these are the passionate ideas. This is what is getting the activists excited. This is where they want to, uh, the ground they want to fight on. So this isn't being made up out of whole cloth. And again, like, this is the New York Times editorial page. <laughs> you know, you, do you guys read your own newspaper? Yeah. It's just unbelievable. You look at uh, the, the Green New Deal, for example, there's your socialism. Obviously, what we've seen in New York and Virginia is, is perfectly accurate from what Trump said in the speech. And you got Omar and, and Tlaib and, and, and some other folks on Capitol Hill. I mean, it was uh, they claimed it was because of the shutdown that they didn't want to advance the anti-BDS bill in the Senate. But uh, Democrats voted against that, too. For whatever reason they, they picked, they still voted against it. And much like the, uh, you know, the objection to Northam, there, there was that statement from Democratic leadership saying uh, that they you know, did not agree with her comment that, you know, APAC was bribing uh, lawmakers to support Israel and things like that. Great. I guess the proof will be in the pudding uh, that, that if, you know, Congresswoman Omar keeps her nose clean, so to speak, and doesn't have further remarks like this. Well, OK, maybe she got the message. Maybe they really did give her a talking to and saying, hey, you're damaging the party. You got to knock this off. If she goes off and does this again a week from now or two weeks from now or a month from now or something, you know, then all of a sudden we'll have this conclusion. Okay, they say they denounce it, but there's never any real consequence to it. So how much do they really oppose it? So I has a fair question to ask. And, you know, again, you know, there's a fairly easy way for Democrats to avoid these charges, you know, Greg. Don't hold these positions. <laughs> exactly right. Well, the good news media is you only have one direction to go this week, I hope. Um, Jim, real quickly before we go, um, we lost a political maverick over the weekend. Pat Goodell was kind of a boy wonder whose uh, polling skills and, and, and uh, public relations skills helped to uh, bring Jimmy Carter to the presidency in 1976. Uh, but Pat was always a populist, didn't necessarily go knee-jerk with his party a lot of the time. Uh, and he recognized the appeal of uh, the Trump message and the Trump candidacy long before a lot of other people did. So in a world where Everyone's usually trying to appeal to their base and say what they think people want to hear. Pat Cadell was not that person, and uh, a voice like that is going to be missed. 
Yeah, he joined us on a National Review cruise a few years ago. I think I want to say it was like my, either the first one, might have been 2017. I want to say it was like right after Trump had taken office. Um, and let's just kind of observe. You know, there are a lot of pollsters working, and and many of them are fine. Some of them are more insightful and and thought provoking than others. I think it's safe to say Pat Cadell, despite occasionally having the the verbal tone of Ben Stein, was never boring. <laughs> in fact, I would say in front of the National Review cruise, he was he was the hit of the cruise, and he was the guy who, um, you know, I don't know if it was from his polling and his focus groups or something, but he had a great way of articulating what was on people's minds. And maybe they had kind of half said it or kind of hinted towards it or something. But, but you just saw people ready to jump out of their seats and say, amen. Uh, and, you know, when he complained about out of touch politicians and disconnect between the actual lived lives of Americans and the governing class and, and all that kind of stuff. Pat Cadell understood it. And Pat Cadell could understand, you could articulate it and put it in a way that a broad spectrum of people could say, aha, oh, that's what's going on. That's what's on people's minds. That's what they're feeling. Uh, and I think we need more of that in our politics, not less of it. So uh, Pat Cadell will very much be missed. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jim, hopefully we'll be back with some uh, some good news on the Tuesday edition of the podcast. But uh, we can only hope right now. See you then. Look, at least it's Friday, Greg. <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And, hey, don't forget, you can get your postage a whole lot cheaper over at Stamps.com. Four-week trial plus free postage and the digital scale. Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in 3Martini. And please tune in Tuesday for the next 3Martini Lunch.